Please listen carefully. Carefully, carefully, carefully. And welcome to the Utterly Moderate Podcast, where two reasonable social scientists try to tackle the biggest issues of the day. I'm Allison Dagnus. I'm a political scientist. And I'm Lauren Seppert. I'm a sociologist. How are you doing today there, Allie? I'm, you know what? I'm, I'm good, generally, Lawrence. Uh, but I have to say, because I've been in my house for the last um, three decades, it feels like uh, I'm feeling <laughs> a little, feeling a little pent up. Yeah. Um, I'm feeling a little, you know, fenced in. So, yeah. So I'm thinking that I want to move. I'm thinking I want to migrate someplace. I would like to explore new lands. And that is why today. Where where is my where is my prices right? Fail horn. Nope. Nope. You don't get that. Nope. You don't get that. Can I have some editorial control? You have no editorial. You have to vet these jokes ahead of time. I'm not going to. I'm not going to. I'm going to slide these all in and you're just going to have to use them. Uh, Today's topic is immigration. Uh, Is it? it, it, What a segue. It is. Way to go. What can I say? Uh, We have such a great guest who is going to be joining us to talk about immigration to the United States. So um, shall we uh, go ahead and get started there, Lawrence? I think that sounds good before we let this thing get too far off the track. So our guest today is Alex Narasta. He's the director of Immigration Studies at the Cato Institute's Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. His popular publications have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, USA Today, and a number of others. He also has a number of peer-reviewed academic publications that have appeared in the World Bank Economic Review, the Journal of Economic Behavior and Organization, Public Choice, and a number of others. He is sort of the go-to expert in this country on this topic. You'll see him all over cable news and, and across various media outlets. In fact, I'm willing to bet nine times out of ten, when you're reading a, a newspaper article about one of the topics that we're covering today, like immigration and crime, and you click on one of the links that they use to cite their sources, like I said, nine times out of 10, it's probably going to one of Alex's publications. And because of that, we are very happy to have him joining us. So Alex, welcome to the show. Yeah. Thank you for joining us. This is going to be really interesting and I think very informative. Well, thanks a lot for having me. I appreciate it. So Alex, I think I want to start us off looking really broadly um, because it feels like immigration has been an issue in this country for decades and decades, but it also feels like it has a snowball effect. It's just gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. And now it feels like the most sort of fraught topic that we are discussing today is am, am I reading this wrong? Can you explain why that is? If I am reading it correctly, why is immigration such a big, big topic these days? I think you're generally right. I would say the period of like 2017, 2018 was probably more intense just because we had president Trump coming out. It seemed weekly with new executive orders and actions that were uh, unprecedented, everything from the Muslim ban to basically canceling asylum. Now we're at the point where we're sort of the Biden administration is unwinding some of those. So it's it's a big energy, but 
from somebody, the perspective of somebody sort of on the inside <laughs> talking about policy, it's a very different energy, right? It, that energy was a, I'm going to sleep four hours a night and work 18 hour days and uh, be on call 24 seven. And now it's like a 10 hour day. So it's a vastly different world <laughs> for me. And I think a better place for where the country is in some ways. So in some ways, the sort of um, anti-immigration side of the spectrum is fortifying itself, but it's in, fun, it's in retreat. And I think the pro-immigration side is at least gaining some ground. So yeah, you're right. It's an intense issue. Why is it an intense issue? Uh, there are a million books and articles about that. All lots of really good theories. I think cultural fears people have about people who speak different languages, the same nativism as always, and fears about things like national security, um, which are, are pretty salient, at least since 9-11 in the United States. But if I could give you like a one word sort of answer, I mean, that's I, I really can't give you one one good answer to that. Okay, well, our focus today is going to be the public and political discourse around immigration in the U.S. What is fact and what is fiction? So let's begin by talking about immigrants today compared to immigrants in the past. Uh, there are a lot of folks who romanticize immigrants of the past and think really negatively about immigrants today in comparison to those past immigrants. So are they right or are they making a lot out of nothing? We're really making a lot out of nothing there. Um, on some measures, immigrants today integrate and assimilate at a faster rate than the past, um, such as language. We can see that with language. Um, in some ways, it might be um, a little bit slower, um, such as there might be for like lower skilled immigrants today, it might take an extra generation to get to sort of the American average. But all in all, according to work, especially by Jacob Vigdor, when you take a look at sort of all the different measures of social assimilation into the United States, you know, you take a look at family size, uh, education, civic participation, voting, whom you vote for, uh, all, all these measures, it's basically either better than it was about 100 years ago or the same. So it's going pretty well. I think the problem is when we view history, right? Like I remember learning history in high school and, you know, you read about the problems with the Irish in the 1840s and 50s. And then you turn a page in the book and it's like, oh, that turned out to be fine. But that page was like 70 years, <laughs> right? So people in the middle of that, you know, if you're like in the 1860s, you might think, oh man, these Irish immigrants are terrible. They're never going to assimilate. Um, and that's where we kind of are today, right? We're in the middle of a large wave of immigration. And it may look a little messy, but looking at the you know, generations that came from Central America and Asia, you know, in 1970s, 80s, uh, you know, their kids and they themselves and their kids today, they're basically indistinguishable from the trend lines of assimilation of Italian immigrants uh, about 100, uh, you know, 70 to 100 years ago. The research that Alex is talking about is really, really interesting. And it's actually really clear in what it, it says. Immigrants today are learning the English language at least as fast as immigrants of the past, if not faster. And like I said, the data is really clear on that. But unfortunately, if you believe something really strongly, the data doesn't seem to matter, right? Like if it's just so ingrained 
if if you you're just so convinced that immigrants are just resistant to assimilating, then the data doesn't make much of a difference oftentimes. I find very few people are convinced by any data or evidence <laughs> in any way, right? Uh, it's sort of the challenge. I, I struggle with it in trying to justify my job to myself sometimes. Um, but from their perspective, right, trying to put myself in the shoes of somebody who's concerned about this, you know, they might say, okay, that's fine, Alex, you know, 10, 20 years, this might all be well and dandy. But right now, and for the, you know, near future, this is an extra frustration, an extra annoyance. And then they're going to pick up on, you know, the handful of people who say silly things like, I don't want to assimilate. Uh, I don't want to become an American. You know, the handful of people who say these things. And it's super rare, right? But you find like, you know, some immigrant somewhere who says something like that and it gets repeated a million times. It becomes like the stereotype. And it, it's simply not true, right? That's the, that's the exception that proves the rule. So there, it's like the way in which narratives, you know, people have narratives uh, that they use to try to explain the world. And the narrative, the idea that there's um, immigrants today are counter to all immigrants in America's past from everywhere, are not going to assimilate, have made a conscious choice not to, and somehow we're going to do well here, is popular. And the funny thing is, these narratives sort of go in cycles. This was something that people were saying in the 1920s and 19-teens also. So you can almost predict exactly what people are going to say based on what happened with Italian or Jewish immigration from Eastern Europe or the Irish. Or even before that, with, um, you know, the Scots, Irish and the French in the early 19th, late um, 18th centuries. It, it also I mean, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the politics of all of this, because it feels like this is that, that when it gets shorthanded, the way that you just described it. Right. The narrative that is kind of predictive um, that it's used then as the sledgehammer. Right. So it's it, there's there's no room for nuance. There's no room for discussion because it becomes almost like code for something. And um, I think we've just seen an escalation of this, as you mentioned you know, earlier in the Trump years, that that really you just say sort of immigration and everybody knows exactly what you're talking about. You don't even have to keep going. You just say the word and everyone's like, yep, got it. Uh, and then they take their sides and that's that. Um, what do you see in terms of the politicization of this issue and how that is affecting an actual policy outcome? And what's interesting is it's not just unlawful or unauthorized immigrants who he's talking about. He's also talking about lawful immigrants. Mm-hmm. And that's the big shift, I think. That's the thing that is most perplexing to me that sort of caught me the most off guard was this is really about all immigrants. Whereas before, right, if you want to read like Republicans or, uh, you know, nativist anti-immigration people talking about this before, they focused almost exclusively on unauthorized immigrants. And that shift was radical um, and dramatic. And I'd say the best number one book that prepared me for this was Ann Coulter's book, actually, uh, Adios America, uh, I think was like the ideological Bible that probably inspired Donald Trump, at least in the rhetoric and the attacks, uh, more than anything else. I read that book like two months before Donald Trump entered, and it prepared me better than anything else. 
I've never recommended an Ann Coulter book before. <laughs> I was going to say, so you're now on the record saying that Ann Coulter is an inspiration and that her work is biblical. And <laughs> so I just, I, I, I think she would really appreciate having a hype man these days. So that's great. That's good yeah, stuff. You know, for this, um, for this topic, sometimes you have to read the people you disagree with to understand it. And man, yeah. her book, Adios America. Yeah. Um, Every theme that you saw Donald Trump run with, especially in his first speech about criminals uh, crossing the border, about unauthorized immigrants, about you know everything, terrorism. It, it's like a, an outline for him. Ann wow. Coulter is biblical. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us for our last show <laughs> ever. Sorry, uh, sorry for getting you canceled. <laughs> Appreciate it, Alex. All right, so uh, since you brought it up, let's... Uh, venture into the territory of some of the, the myths that exist out there about unauthorized immigrants. Um, because I think this was one of the things that was really used as that sledgehammer that you're talking about, Allie. And that is the myth that immigrants are more prone to be involved in crime compared to native born Americans. Now, Alex, you alluded to that famous speech given by President Trump at the very beginning of his campaign. We should be very clear that President Trump did not create this myth. It has been around in the U.S. for a long, long time. He just gave it sort of a big platform. Um, so here's a clip. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're not sending you. They're not sending you. They're sending people that have lots of problems, and they're bringing those problems with us. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. And some, I assume, are good people. That was from his presidential announcement on June 16th, 2015. And it's a claim that he would repeat a number of times throughout his administration. In fact, just a few weeks later, in an interview with Fox News on July 5th, 2015, he says, I can never apologize for the truth. I don't mind apologizing for things, but I can't apologize for the truth. I said tremendous crime is coming across. Everybody knows that's true. So again, Trump did not create this myth, but he certainly amplified it to a degree that maybe it hadn't been amplified before. Alex, what does the research tell us about the relationship between immigration and crime? So what we did was we took a look at this uh, and we found that unauthorized immigrants have a uh, criminal conviction rate. Um, less than half that of native-born Americans, and then lawful immigrants have a criminal conviction rate again that's a little bit less than about half as much as unauthorized immigrants. So basically, you know, the evidence is pretty clear that unauthorized immigrants have a substantially lower criminal conviction rate. Um, and sort of to confirm this, right, there's this great research by Michael Light, who is a, um, a criminologist, I believe, at University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. And he sort of took this data that we found and did what professional academics do best, which is that he, he sort of delved down into it, created a superb methodology, and basically found out that the state of Texas, um, or the, the, the government program that was identifying these folks, was over-identifying the number of unauthorized immigrants who were arrested. So it turns out that their unauthorized crime rate in Texas is probably even lower than what I estimate. So it's just clear and overwhelming. And the consensus is that immigrants have a much lower crime rate than native-born Americans. 
and unauthorized immigrants, again, have a much lower crime rate than native-born Americans. Yes, and we always post companion resources with our episodes. If you go to utterlymoderate.com and go to the episode archive for this particular episode, you can see all of the studies that Alex is referencing, whether you're talking about arrests, whether you're talking about convictions, whether you're talking about incarceration, regardless of the crime, whether you're talking about sex crimes or homicides or, you know, larceny, uh, the patterns are clear. Unauthorized folks... And legal immigrants both have lower rates than native-born Americans. The consensus amongst researchers is that immigrants, regardless of legal status, have a much lower crime rate than native-born Americans. So, so yet the um, the sledgehammer of anti-immigration rhetoric continues. Is that I know that it is built upon the idea? Well. Um, undocumented citizens came into the country illegally. They're criminals by dint and virtue of that alone. Um, but to me, it just feels really more steeped in racism. Um, it, it, can you speak to that at all? Kind of any findings that you have about um, what the anti-immigration line is really kind of about? I think there's certainly a good amount of it that could be described by racism. I think there's a good amount that can be described just by sort of general xenophobia, just okay. people not liking foreigners, um, no matter where they're from or what they look like. Um, I think there's also a certain amount of cultural fear that Americans have. Uh, I think every people in every country have it, but I think some that Americans have where we are. Um, you know, I'm more likely to be afraid that immigrants aren't going to assimilate, aren't are going to displace our culture in some way. Language, I think, is a great example of that. Um, you know, there's that old joke, right? Like, what do you call somebody who speaks two languages? It's a bilingual. What do you call somebody who speaks one language? American. Um, <laughs> That's yeah. Funny. And so, you know, hearing somebody speak another language can be um, uh, annoying to a lot of people and they take it out on on foreigners. And I think also the sort of relatively lower rate of economic growth for the last 30, 40, 50 years since the early 1970s um, has also put some strain on people that otherwise wouldn't wouldn't be there sort of push them in that direction. So and then what I think would be sort of the, the biggest thing that people don't talk about that much, but I, I think matters, and there's some findings in political psychology about this, is the perception of chaos. Mm -hmm. So if people think that the southern border, for instance, is open and chaotic, people are streaming across, there's no government control, they're much more likely to be opposed to even the legal version of that. But if they think that things are under control, then they chill out, they calm down, right? So that's why somebody like Donald Trump talking about them flooding over the border, even though the lumbers of people crossing the border in 2015 were the lowest since the 1970s, right? The perception was it's so bad, it's so terrible. So it pushed people in that direction. And there's work about this with places like Canada and Australia and other places where in Canada, uh, sorry, in Australia, where they're very pro-immigration, very high legal immigration numbers, as soon as some asylum seekers start landing on their shores unlawfully, the public goes way against immigration in the polls. Hmm. So as soon as the government gets control of that, though, even though they let in an enormous number of immigrants, right, but they take these refugees or asylum seekers and then they treat them terribly on these islands that are far away and imprison them, 
the fact that it sort of has doing that has destroyed the perception of chaos has allowed Australia to maintain a relatively more open system than the United States, which borders a developing nation directly, a land border. So it's just hard to, to and that's the thing that I think we really need um, to get under control. And it's a double-edged sword because if you build a wall like Donald Trump wanted, right, some of my friends would be like, well, that means you get control and people will feel more secure. So then maybe you can reopen the borders legally. And I say, yeah, maybe. Or maybe what that means is every unauthorized immigrant who crosses the border will have a picture taken of them and it'll be a dramatic image and it will become even more salient in people's minds and backfire. So, and you know, from my perspective, the way you cut unauthorized immigration is by increasing legal immigration. Mm -hmm. Same thing with every black market, right? But the point is I can't get public opinion to do that unless the border is relatively under control and these perceptions of chaos diminish. So I, I, you know, the stuff you say about racism, I think that's absolutely true. I think that plays a role. But the chaos is something that I think um, really drives a lot of these. And it's consistent with this narrative about crime, about terrorism, uh, about everything. Now, Alex, at the at the end of the show, we we definitely want to talk about your thoughts about what a, a really comprehensive immigration reform package should look like. But we'll save that for that conversation. But just something that you talked about in terms of the southern border and 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 chaos at the southern border. Um, can you clarify for our our listeners clearly that any kind of immigration legislation is going to have to consider the southern border? But can you talk about like where the big chunks of unauthorized immigrant folks come from? Because I think a big chunk is not actually coming from the southern border, correct? Yeah, that's right. Uh, about 45% or so of unauthorized immigrants currently living in the United States, that is the stock of them in the United States, uh, entered lawfully and overstayed a visa. So they entered mm. as tourists, they entered on a work visa, uh, mostly as tourists, by the way, uh, and then they overstayed. Um, and decided to work in the underground economy. The other half, a uh, little bit more than half, basically crossed the southern border. Most, most of them crossed the southern border or they sort of came from Central America, the Caribbean uh, or South America um, across a land border or sort of landing uh, via ships somewhere in the United States, but mostly along the land border uh, with the United States. Now that's uh, cumulatively over time. That's the entire stock of, of unauthorized immigrants. Uh, now you correct me if I'm wrong, but as far as I know, recent research over the last several years has shown that yearly now the majority are actually folks who come here legally and overstay. Is that correct? So that's the most recent estimates that have been put out um, is that those numbers are more than half around 60% or so are those coming in lawfully and overstaying. Sure. Is, do you think that um, some of the really draconian measures that were taken at the southern border, um, uh, members of the Trump administration argued that the reason that they had those programs, you know, child separation and, um, you know, just terrible treatment in general, um, was to spread the word and dissuade, deter people from trying to cross illegally? Do you think that that has been effective? Do you think that that is true? I think it has had some effect. Um, I think the bigger effect, uh, I think there are two things that have had a bigger effect. One is the Trump administration continuing sort of an Obama administration initiative, basically asked the Mexican government to increase enforcement at its southern border to try to stop Central Americans from coming up. And I think that has been fairly effective. 
probably more effective as an enforcement measure than what the U.S. has done on the southwest border. The other thing that we've done historically, um, and this worked very well with with cutting Mexican unauthorized immigration, is that the U.S., beginning around the year 2000, started to vastly increase the number of temporary migrant guest worker visas. Almost all went to Mexicans and work in agriculture uh, and other seasonal, temporary, lower-skilled work in the United States. And these numbers went up dramatically, uh, the number of visas from 2000 up through, uh, well, I mean, even in the Trump administration, it continued to rise, those numbers. So what we found in our research is that one additional visa issued to a Mexican to come in lawfully to work cut the numbers of unauthorized immigrants apprehended by Border Patrol from Mexico by one. So it's sort of a one to one. And and the big difference, right, and this is something that people don't realize, the wage differences controlling for cost of living for a lower skilled Mexican worker to the United States, it's about a three to four fold increase in wages. But that's dramatic. That's insane. That's crazy. That's like I've never had from one job to another where it's a three to four fold increase. And so, I mean, they're right there and Americans want to hire them and they want to be hired. And the great thing that the government has done during the George W. Bush, uh, Obama, and and even up through March 2020, Trump administration did was sort of increase those numbers, direct them toward Mexicans. And that has done more than anything else to diminish the flow of unauthorized immigrants across the southwest border. It's I, I just never heard the Trump administration talking about increasing that. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like that was never part of the narrative. The narrative was like we're cutting everybody out. Yeah, they never talked about that. Um, this was the only ones, by the way, where they uh, the numbers increased. Alex, can you give us a little bit of a history about the child separation policy? Um, which president did it start under? Why did it start? What did it look like then? and How it might have changed over the years? Sure. The child separations, well, first off, children have always been separated by immigration enforcement from their parents for as long as the United States has had uh, Border Patrol or immigration enforcement. So Border Patrol was created in 1924. Every year since then, there has been some kind of separation. Uh, The Obama administration expanded it a bit uh, in like 2013, 2014, um, in, in, in part as a response to coping with a massive surge of people uh, along the southwest border. Um, but it was not by no means like every single person coming across with a child. It was not a systematic policy. It was something done in particular times, particular places based on certain circumstances, especially if there was suspicion that the that they weren't related to each other or if there were just other problems related to this, maybe a holding capacity for different uh, children versus parents. Like you don't want to put a lot of children in with a lot of random adults, for instance, in detention facilities. Uh, What changed under the Trump administration is they decided to make it a systematic policy for basically everyone. And what happened was they sort of ran this uh, pilot program in 2017 along the El Paso sector of the southwest border, where they wanted to see, they wanted to separate the children from their parents, and they wanted to see um, what happened to apprehensions, whether this would uh, prevent apprehension people from coming in the first place. Uh, They basically found... It was like a super small sample size. Um, so not nearly enough people to be able to say anything statistically significant about it. Uh, but that didn't stop them from uh, initiating it borderline. 
Now, that wasn't the only thing they did. Uh, slightly before this, they also basically made it impossible to go to a port of entry and ask for asylum, which means that you gave an incentive to the asylum seekers to instead cross the border unlawfully and then ask for asylum, which is also totally legal and fine under U.S. law. But what the Jeff Sessions as attorney general said was, well, if anybody crosses the U.S. border unlawfully, which is technically a crime under U.S. law, most immigration offenses are not crimes, but that is technically a crime, then we are going to charge that person with that offense and they're going to have to go to court. When you're charged with a federal crime and you have a child with you, you are separated from your children. You go to a federal criminal holding cell and await um, your arraignment, and the child is put in protective services. So it's sort of this combination of multiple different policies overlapping without any kind of leeway as part of shutting down the asylum system in general that led to this, um, this catastrophe along the southwest border, this sort of embarrassing, horrible human rights infringing catastrophe along the border. That policy is so unbelievably devastating to me as a human being, as a parent of four. It, it's just so unbelievably sad to think that these children are ripped from their families and, and to, to really process the long-term impacts that that will have on these children. It's just, um, I, I don't have words devastating. I mean, the word you used, a catastrophe. Um, and I, I don't have a great way to segue to the next question, but is it safe to say that whether we're talking about Republican administrations or Democratic administrations, that for most of American history before 2016, that this policy was used sparingly that it was used only you know when absolutely necessary and that something changed with this administration and with you know people like Stephen Miller really pushing for it yes that is totally fair to say i mean i think it's fair to say you know prior to the trump administration this policy was used with different amounts of frequency in response to crises or in response to specific individualized situations or, or by, by accident or bad sort of policy taken out at the local level. Uh, during the Trump administration, it became systematic and it became government policy for uh, the entire uh, Border Patrol um, and CBP operations along the border. Am, am I right that it was it Stephen Miller, one of the people that pushed that hard? The evidence that we have is Stephen Miller pushed that hard, uh, but he also didn't really get any pushback from anybody else, as far as I can tell. Not that much, you know, a little bit, um, but a lot of sort of face saving gestures. But uh, there I mean, a lot of the folks hired in the Trump administration, from Stephen Miller down to some, you know, mid-level bureaucrats in the Department of Homeland Security, were folks who came from these anti-immigrant organizations like the Center for Immigration Studies, Federation for American Immigration Force, uh, Reform, uh, Numbers USA, and some of these other groups, um, staffing like lowly sort of lawyer positions, legal counsel positions, policy advisor positions, uh, up and down the line. So I think it's fair to say Stephen Miller probably to blame for most of this, at least for originating a lot of these policy ideas. But there are a lot of individuals to blame. Uh, who carried it out, who ignored not only law, but I think ethics, ethical obligations 
while putting these in place. The child separation policy sickens me to my core at a level that I just can't even express. And there's no great segue, so we'll just move on. But let's talk about the impact of immigration on the economy. So what's the story when it comes to the impact of immigration on things like the economy, on employment, and on wages? Economists are almost uniformly agreed that immigration is good for the economy of the United States, that it grows the size of the economy, it increases economic growth, and that um, the biggest disagreement is whether immigrants lower the relative wages of American high school dropouts by 1.7% or whether it increases them relatively by about six-tenths of 1%. So you're basically talking about a 2.3 percentage point spread is the largest disagreement in the entire academic peer-reviewed literature on the issue of immigration, uh, is on that wage effect. And what's important, what's important to point out is the way that these econometrics are run is when I say like a negative 1.7 effect plus 0.6, these are not absolute wage increases or declines. These are movements relative to other people's wages. So what you see is during this entire time, wages for all these groups are going up. It's just that immigration lowers the rate at which the wages for high school American dropouts increases by a little bit or whether it increases it a little bit. That's it. And I want to say the amount of airtime spilled (laughs) on this small finding and small disagreement is grossly disproportionate and probably the most grossly disproportionate sort of academic uh, disagreement in all of the fields of any social science or science anywhere (laughs) in all of public debate. I will go on the record saying that. Is it the same story across the board, whether you're talking about the economy, wages, unemployment? I mean, is is it the same story, like positive across the board? It's pretty positive across the board. Like I'm willing to bite the bullet and say, okay, there might be some effect right on American high school dropouts. All right. Like there might be some relative negative effect. That seems to be where the most evidence that is negative is concentrated there, but most of them still find it's a positive impact. Um, So you're talking about small things, basically the net fiscal impact is to make it the long and the short. It's positive overall for immigrants it might be negative for immigrants or high school dropouts, but we don't actually really know yet. Alex, are you a South Park fan? Sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> but I'm assuming you've heard, they took our jobs. They took our jobs. Yeah, yeah they're down. They took our jobs. They took our jobs. They took your jobs. They took our jobs. They took your jobs. They took your jobs. They took your jobs. But then the people from the future came along, and and now we're out of work, too. Oh, they took our jam. They took your jam. They took your jam. Yes, yes, I love that episode. (laughs) (laughs) Let me ask you a quick hitter question, and then we'll move on. Uh, My understanding is the consensus in the research is that uh, immigrants tend to use less in social services than they actually pay for in taxes. Is that your understanding? Yeah, the consensus is that immigrants are either using, uh, consuming fewer resources from the government than they're paying in taxes, or they're using about the same. So it's like a net 
Is that true for unauthorized folks? Yes. So it's funny. um, There's a really good study about this from the state of Texas in uh, 2006, I believe it was. And they took a look at the unauthorized immigrants net contribution to the state's uh, coffers. And they found that unauthorized immigrants paid in about $500 million more in tax revenue than received in benefits. And that's partly because they don't have access to means-tested benefits. And Texas doesn't have a state income tax. So as a result, they're paying like property tax and sales tax, which are things like you just can't get away from, <laughs> right? So it's like, it's not like in California where you're not going to be paying income tax unless you make like $75,000 a year. Um, everybody pays those in Texas. So they found like the comptroller of the currency in Texas found, hey, unauthorized immigrants, they're actually a fiscal boom to the state of Texas. <laughs> that's not going to be a bumper sticker slogan that's going to win you many Americans' hearts, Alex. Now, we've tried to convince the Texas state government to redo that study in more recent years. Uh, and surprisingly, they haven't. So uh, read into that what you will. <laughs> you know, that kind of that leads to another question that I have about the politics of all of this, which is that it feels like with the information that we have and and you're providing consensus opinion and data and and sort of agreed upon facts when it comes to immigration. It feels like because it has become such a code uh, that it almost is impossible to get away from a caricature of this issue and and move to some, you know, authentic reform. Right. It, It feels like that that as much that maybe one side of this debate doesn't necessarily want there to be reform um, because then it would take away from a big sledgehammer issue that motivates the base. Um, is is that, I, I don't know. I mean, it would put you out of a job. We wouldn't want that, but, um, but you seem like a very smart guy. So you could probably study something else, <laughs> become an expert on that. You know, I mean, there are other issues. I'm sure there are other problems out there. Um, so, you know, why, why isn't there going to be any kind of good comprehensive immigration reform? The main reason is people just disagree over what, you know, over the benefits of, um, over the benefits of immigration, right? It's like, if you were to have any issue, I think, um, this is like wrapped up in the culture wars, mm-hmm. I think a bit. And, you know, no matter what the facts may be about anything related to say, um, you know, gay marriage or transgender issues or anything with that, I mean, you're just going to have people on both sides who are not going to change your mind, no matter what the facts are no matter what their issue is. So I call it cycling. I call it argument cycling, where I will argue with somebody about immigration and they'll be like, well, what about wages? And I'll be like, well, the research says this. And they'd be like, oh, hey, what about taxes? And I'll say this. And they go, crime, you know, terrorism, uh, linguistic assimilation, patriotism, who they vote for. I go, yeah, always down this list. And then by the done time done with it, they start, well, what about wages? When we go back to the beginning again. And it's like, <laughs> I think it's just a feeling in search of a reason. Uh, people just don't like... Some people in this country just do not like foreigners that much. They just don't want them in. And I'm not sure if they have a good reason. It's just like this feeling, right? Like we, as human beings, we evolved in the savannah and small groups that were homogeneous. And in those situations, 
where there really is a fixed pie of resources, right? Like if somebody comes on and kills another Buffalo, mm-hmm. right? That's one less Buffalo for your tribe to have, right? Like being xenophobic might be a smart survival strategy in that type of fixed pie environment, but we don't live in that world anymore. All right. We live in a positive sum world where people are a huge benefit to the economy, to everything. Um, but our brains haven't adapted yet. We haven't evolved. Like our social circumstances and economic circumstances that we've created have changed a lot more quickly than our brains have. <laughs> and so we're just going to be stuck in this environment. And you see it with everything. Like if, if you talk about trade, people hate foreigners. You know, me selling something across the border from Virginia to D.C., nobody cares. All of a sudden I sell it to China. Oh, man, the Chinese are going to come and they're going to use this. And they're taking advantage of you. And it's a zero sum world all of a sudden when the lines on the map change. And it's something which I think points to the failure of economists over the last 250 years. As we've known, this stuff is nonsense. It doesn't matter. Mutually beneficial exchanges are positive sum. And we still have not been able to convince people of that. So Alex. something's wrong with economists. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. We have someone to blame. That's exciting. We, we look for that on this podcast. Well, and, and you've, you've either given me the name to my next podcast or my next uh, rock and roll band, uh, A Feeling in Search of a Reason. That's pretty good. Oh, thank you. You know, you can have it. <laughs> I thought you were going to say it's all the economist's fault. Because <laughs> that's another really good podcast we could do. Hey, uh, Alex, we don't need to belabor this point, but uh, we should touch on it since you mentioned it. Am I correct? Uh, if you and we're not talking about domestic terrorism here, of course, but when it comes to terrorism in the U.S. that is perpetrated by folks from abroad, uh, as far as I know, folks crossing the southern border and folks who come here unauthorized are a very small percentage of folks who commit terrorist acts. Is that correct? There have been zero Americans killed in terrorist attacks committed on U.S. soil by those who crossed the border unlawfully from 1975 wow. through the end of 2017. Zero. So that's a small number, you'd say. I think it's probably, you know, it's one of the smallest numbers. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's one of these things where, I mean, studying terrorism is so weird because when you look at, you know, U.S. uh, deaths and terrorist attacks, you know, 9-11 dominates. Um, When you take a look at terrorist deaths committed by foreign born people uh, in attacks on U.S. soil, right? Um, 9-11 accounts for about 99% of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and nine, 18 out of those 19 hijackers in 9-11 entered on tourist visas, right? Um, and, and one of them entered on a student visa. So, you know, tourist visas look really bad. Um, but you're also talking about a situation where uh, hundreds of millions of people, uh, well, uh, hundreds of millions of people, maybe a billion people over that entire time period, uh, have entered the United States. The chance of any of them being a terrorist is shockingly low. And the chance of an American being murdered uh, in a terrorist attack, the annual chance from 1975 through the end of 2017, is about one in 3.8 million per year. To put that in perspective, the annual chance of being murdered during that time period is, and just a normal homicide is about one in 20,000 per year. So you're talking about something where, uh, you know, deaths and terrorist attacks committed by foreigners accounts for uh, less than four tenths of one percent of all the murders committed on U.S. soil during that time period, of all the roughly um, 800,000 murders that have been committed during that time period. Alex, how does the U.S. compare in terms of immigration uh, with other countries? In other words, like um, the number of immigrants we have and I guess the, the difficulty of immigrating to the United States. 
Compared to other countries, the actual numbers coming to the United States are the highest of any other country, but the U.S. is also the third largest country in the world. So measured as a percentage of our population, we're in the bottom third of OECD countries in terms of the annual flow of immigrants to the U.S. So compared to these other countries, uh, the U.S. is quite uh, stingy. Uh, in terms of the stock of immigrants, ours is uh, about 13.6%. Australia is um, about 28%, Canada is 21%, New Zealand is 32%, um, uh, Switzerland is about 32%. So um, we're basically in the bottom half of the pack um, in, in most ways that you measure uh, immigration. Um, and coming to this country legally is extremely difficult. One of the saddest parts about my job is telling audiences that Alice Island closed down a long time ago, and there is just nothing like that that exists today. So, Alex, you've mentioned that the Biden administration will probably take on immigration reform in terms of executive action, which is easy to do coming in after the Trump administration used executive action to change what the Obama administration did, which was through executive action. So it's like this sort of um, whiplash system of, you know, programs and then undoing programs and new programs and undoing those and new ones. Um, so what do you see as the long-term, it's a two-part question, what do you think is the long-term impact of this kind of whiplash um, approach to immigration reform? And um, what do you see as the long-term impact of President Trump's executive actions when it comes to immigration? So I think the long-term effect of this ex dueling executive actions is um, the issue is not going to go away for a very long time and it's not going to be solved. It's always going to be politically salient. Politicians are always going to be mad about something and it's never really going to be settled in the way that having a law passed by Congress will really sort of settle it. Never going to be permanent. The numbers could shrink, right? So if President Biden... Uh, issues uh, temporary protected status to all unauthorized immigrants in the United States, some of them will be able to adjust their status through a green card, through marriage, or through other means, right? So it might shrink the pool of unauthorized immigrants by one or two million. Uh, he might do some other things to shrink it by another couple million, by channeling them into a legal market through other means. Um, but it's fundamentally just not going to go away as a problem because people want to come to this country to work, and we don't let them because there just aren't that many visas that this government issues. Uh, so I think the issue is just going to keep cycling and we're going to have and like it will for a lot of issues, by the way. I mean, the only really big law passed by Congress during Trump's administration were the tax cuts. Mm -hmm. um, nothing else. And the only big laws during the Biden administration were really, um, you know, when, when he had uh, the Democrats control both houses of Congress, you know, like Dodd-Frank, uh, Stimulus and the Affordable Care Act. Uh, and after that, it was like basically nothing. Um, you know, some small things here that I like to sequester. But that's, I think, the, the, the governing strategy going forward is more and more Congress is irrelevant. And we're basically going to be electing a um, uh, judicially constrained. How do I say this so it's not so inflammatory, but a judicially constrained like autocrat every four to eight years. And that's basically going to be the cycle going forward. It's like uh, it's like in Venice where you elect a doge. Back in the day, he was basically like king for life. You know, at least these guys aren't king for life. Uh, but you're going to get it from every 48 years. And I think that's basically the cycle. So, like, to give you a bit of insight, I 
used to do a ton of work with people in Congress about immigration reform. Like, what are we going to do? Um, I find increasingly it's just a waste of time because they can't do anything. So my entire strategy now is to talk to people in the administration because that's where all the action is. That's where everything's going to happen. So um, in, in more ways than one, I think Congress is a dead institution uh, in our government. And we basically have an executive branch constrained by courts that are picked by the executive branch and rubber stamped by Congress when the president's party controls it. That is incredibly depressing. It's what's remarkable to me is that things aren't worse considering how um, this, this government quote works on works, uh, you know, quote unquote works. Um, things could be a lot worse. So what's remarkable to me is, you know, as bad as I think things are and as much as I complain about it, which is my job, right? Um, if I were to describe this government to somebody, like if somebody were to describe this government to me like 30 years ago or 25 years ago, I'd be like, how would you think that that would work out for, say, the economy and general social whatever? And I'd be like, oh, that sounds terrible. Uh, it sounds like uh, they must be starving in the streets. And or so stuck I have in their admit, homes. <laughs> yeah, but, well, yeah, they're stuck in their homes, right? But I have to admit, um, considering how bad and dysfunctional it is, you sure don't feel it in a lot of ways, but that might just because, uh, you know, we're sort of sheltered by the worst of it, right? Like nobody on this podcast is an unauthorized immigrant. Um, nobody in this podcast uh, has lost, you know, has is, is unemployed, you know, all this stuff. So that might be sort of a spoiled comment on my part. But as bad as it is in the government, um, I think it will get worse. I think there will be further concentration of executive power uh, in the office of the president. I do think both parties are to blame from this, but to different degrees at different times and in different ways. And I don't think there is a way to get out of it because the incentives for all the political actors are to sort of dig in and double down on this. So that's the worst. That's the most scary thing is as this is in everybody's best interest to continue. Um, OK, so uh, one final question before we let you go. Um, are you confident that we will ever have meaningful immigration reform in this country? On a long enough timeline, yes. And the next two years, no. The, I mean, <laughs> I think the reason should be pretty obvious. Um, you know, uh, one side of the political spectrum uh, does not want any kind of reform that legalizes folks or increases lawful immigration. The other side does. And there is just no way the, the, the majorities in Congress are not large enough to make that happen. Um, what I think we might see is some pretty large executive actions on the part of the Biden administration mm -hmm. to use temporary protected status to legalize all unlawful immigrants in the United States. I think that will happen um, when it becomes clear that Congress will not act. Alex, uh, if, if you had a wish list of things, and I, I don't mean not that you're some extremist, but, uh, <laughs> you know, if you, if you had a wish list of things that you think are reasonably left of center and right of center, you know, things that are that are practical, what what should a comprehensive uh, immigration reform bill include? What are some of the big things that we should be doing if we lived in a world where politicians work together and they actually wanted to solve problems? Well, uh, a couple things. Um, it's nice to not be called an extremist as a, as a libertarian who works at the Cato Institute. That's always a nice pleasure. Uh, <laughs> but I will say um, there are big three big pieces to immigration reform, I think that are necessary to make it work. One is some kind of legalization program for the unauthorized immigrants who are currently here. 
Uh, the second is an expansion and liberalization of legal immigration so that folks don't have to try to come unlawfully in the future so that they can be channeled into the legal market uh, and so that it's just good for the United States going forward, good for our economy, good for our society. And then the third part is some kind of big expansion of enforcement, which usually means hiring a lot more Border Patrol agents, having an entry exit system for visas so we can identify, the government can identify those who overstay their visas, and usually some kind of domestic employment authorization system where you have to run your name through a government database to get a job. Now, again, you, you, you laid this out for our listeners that, you know, over the entirety of, you know, the past few decades that, um, you know, a slight, slightly higher than majority chunk of, of folks who came unauthorized, uh, came across the Southern border, but, you know, yearly numbers in recent years has been, you said around 60% of folks coming legally. So how do you fix those channels? Like, I, I know that enforcement at the border is a piece of this, but if 60% of folks are coming here legally and then they're just not leaving, how do you fix those channels? So most of those folks are tourists. And what they do is they get a tourist visa to come in and visit, but their real goal the whole time is just to be able to overstay and work. And they do that because they don't have access to a work visa. So what we do is by increasing the number of work visas available to workers at every skill level, uh, we can channel a lot of those people who would break the laws into a legal market, and we shrink the pool that way. Um, there's always going to be some unauthorized immigrants. Always, you know, no matter unless we have a totally open border system, right? There's always going to be some unauthorized immigrants. So it's just the strategy is to get that number down to a very manageable low figure, and to make it so that you know peaceful, healthy people who want to come here and work and contribute can do so legally with a minimum of rules, regulation, and red tape. And I think if we have that in place, most of these other problems will go away over time. They will diminish, and you will put me out of a job, which is fine. That is my long-term goal. <laughs> okay, Alex, was there anything you, that you want to plug before you leave? Uh, one thing I'll plug is, and I'm not sure, Allie, that you know this. I'm not sure, Alex, you know this, but the three of us will be in a book together. Uh, oh, yes. So exciting. Yes. Uh, Alex wrote a piece on immigration. Ali, you wrote one on media and I wrote one on freedom. So we'll plug that. That's coming out from Oxford University Press at some point over the next 12 months. But uh, anything you want to plug in terms of projects you're working on, Alex, or, or anything else? Well, I just uh, released a book um, that I co-authored with Benjamin Powell, Cambridge University Press. The book is called Wretched Refuse. The Political Economy of Immigration and Institutions. Uh, it was just reviewed in The Economist magazine, actually. So uh, if you don't mind, you know, go down to Amazon, check it out. And uh, they're flying off the shelves like hotcakes and, you know, like hotcakes for academic books. <laughs> <laughs> so your, your mom bought one is what you're saying. Hotcakes. I'm saying I hope to be in triple digits in no time. <laughs> Fingers crossed. That's the dream. Well, we'll, we'll post some of that in the companion resources for this episode on utterlymoderate.com. And, uh, I do have to say, I mean, if there's, if there's one of the go-to experts when it comes to this topic, it's Alec Narasta. So, you know, go grab that book. Alex, we, I know we have to let you go. We could probably talk for a very, very long time, but, um, we just want to thank you so much. This was 
really informative, um, at times a little scary, but um, it, I think it also gives us some hope and things to work for in the future. Well, it was really my pleasure. I appreciate the invite. And uh, I hope I'm wrong about my pessimistic predictions. And I hope I'm right about my optimistic ones. Uh, thank you. I hope you're wrong, but uh, your pessimism <laughs> your pessimism makes me very comfortable as a pessimist. So <laughs> thanks, Alex. Thank you, guys. Well, I thought that was really great. I, I have to tell you, it's such a huge topic, um, but that helped me understand it a lot better. And um, and I I feel a lot more positive about this than I did before. Of course you do. I, I mean, know. He, it didn't matter what he said. He actually said what he said was depressing. I know. And you said you feel optimistic. I do. I, I can't help it. I can't. I just, you know what? Information. It's a powerful thing. It makes me feel good. But, you know, as the pessimist in the group, I do have to say that, you know, him thinking about time frames, like, hey, maybe not in the next two years, given our political dysfunctions. Yeah. But he does think that we're going to address it long term. And hey, you know what? He's the expert. So I'll be optimistic with you, too. Sunshine I, and rainbows. See, I love it. I love it when you come <laughs> over to the happy side. That always makes me very, very pleased. Um, we have even more to talk about. We have many more good subjects. Do we? Uh, yeah, we do. All right. uh, we're going to talk about Confederate monuments. We are going to talk about the First Amendment and um, the happiest topic of all, COVID. Oh, yummy. Which which really is why we're not going to be able to do anything for the next few years, because we're all <laughs> going to be in our houses and we're not going to be able to leave. So we have no excuse but to pump out some podcasts. That's exactly, that's exactly <laughs> right. It's either this or do our daytime jobs. <laughs> no, so, boo. <laughs> so we hope you will join us for that. Well, before we leave, let's uh, talk about the website. We do have a website, utterlymoderate.com. If you want to check out our episode archive, all of our episodes are posted there along with the companion resources. So all these experts that we're talking to, they've done a lot of great work and we're going to post a lot of links there so you can um, go even deeper if you'd like uh, beyond what we've talked about on the episode. Uh, we also have some more stuff from Allie and I on the website and some good reads and some good resources there. So check that out. As always, if you're listening to us right now, then you know where to find us, but we are on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. So um, that's all I have for plugs. Allie, anything else? No, I think that that works for me. Well, I enjoyed talking to you. And I enjoyed talking to Alex. Thank Alex. you guys. So I was kidding. No, I'm kidding. But <laughs> it really know? was a delight. Do I know uh, you're kidding? Yeah. yeah well, uh -huh. you know, uh, thanks everybody for listening. We look forward to uh, talking at you the next time. Yep. See you later. Please listen carefully. 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 Carefully.